welcome, welcome to Michael and Ethan in a room with Scott. That sucks. The podcast. <laughs> Gentle listener, I come to you in the gravest of circumstances. <laughs> Michael is imitating you all the... Things I say, and he's undercutting me. Don't listen. I move. No, that's okay. You're the host. I'm the guest. You go ahead. Do I what move. You want. Thank you. Let, forgive Charles me, forgive Boyle! <laughs> forgive the interruption. You go right ahead. I move for a vote of no confidence in Chancellor Valorum and also Michael. <laughs> Alright. War on Naboo! <laughs> That's a relevant reference. 20 years ago! <laughs> um, hi, everybody. Howdy! It's Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. We're in a room that Scotch is in. Yep. And... He is in here, I can verify. Here we are. Um, the Scotch, specifically, is Glenn Fodry. F-O-H-D-R-Y. Achel on or Speyside single malt scotch whiskey oak age 12 12 years I'm reading off the label and it does say 12 twice in the same line non chill filtered which makes it more delicious apparently yep it is a limited release and we have it and you don't ha ha um so suck it Nat yeah Nat <laughs> Who has told me specifically he doesn't like scotch before? You don't have this scotch. We do. Uh, so, just going to read a little of the label. I read more of it last time, but... Um, bottled at a higher strength and without chill filtering, our malt master has ensured that you can enjoy the full range of aromas and the full depth of flavors. This exceptional single malt scotch whiskey, all capitalized words, has to offer. Mm-hmm. Um... So we do love this malt master. Dramatically speaking, he did say that he is dead and in the scotch. It's true. And yeah. that's disturbing. Grammatically, we are drinking the malt master. But only grammatically. Only grammatically. Not literally. Not legally. N- not in any way that we can be held accountable for... Only grammatically. ...death of anyone, but only... Grammatically. Yep, that one. Grammatically. You want to try that one again? Grammatically? Yep. <laughs> there you go. It's, it's <laughs> what happens when my grandma, like, gets real giggly when I touch her. Here comes the tickle monster! Wow, that... Yeah. I was hoping that you would do something to distract from how weird the thing I said was, and then you did... But I don't like it. It it was weird enough to distract from how weird the thing you did was, but only in a way that reflects upon the weird thing you did was. <laughs> Good. Speaking of grammar. <laughs> um, so this is a very strict podcast, as you've no doubt guessed already. It has rules. Dear my wife Karen, will you please come in and read these rules? Karen, what are the rules? Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. 
no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Thank you for reading these rules. Uh You're very lovely and will hopefully let me sleep in the bed tonight. Um, If not, I'll take you. Ooh. Uh, don't wait up, Karen. Um, so, Karen read the rules. Yes, she did. Once we clink the glasses, the rules go into effect. Which glasses? And These ones? The ones, no, the ones that the scotch is in. Oh. That I'm allowed to say because we haven't clinked them yet. It's true. Clinked them. But we are both wearing glasses on our face also. That's true. We both have glasses on our face and we have, both have glasses with scotch in them. That's real confusing when you put it that way. <laughs> But, uh, on the other hand, Lachayam. Schlansche. The central plot of this novel. Yep. Uh, now I do want to talk about the mystery, but first I want to veer away from the mystery. Into some of, yeah. I hedged those bets. I heard the thing that you clearly were most interested in discussing by the end of the last episode, and I thought, uh, let's not. (laughs) So. Good. What I'd like to mention is some of the literary history of this novel. Okay. So, we've talked about how steampunk is a genre that's sort of built out of several other genres. Yes. And modern sensibilities, but also slightly older sensibilities and things. Um, uh, This novel has a few kind of deep cut nods to the literary genres that it comes out of okay and i did notice several of them as i was reading it and i did go ahead and fail to like mark them in any meaningful way (laughs) that meant i could get back to them on this podcast the one specific one that i can remember though 
is her parentage. Sure. Um, so the, the main character's parentage, uh, her mother is English, and that's why she's in this sort of English uh, milieu and locale, yes. Um, but her father... What what heritage is her father, Michael? Italian. All right. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna need you to edit the last thirty seconds or so of the podcast out. Well, I just say that her father is Italian. <laughs> um, which is interesting on several literary levels. Did yeah. did it strike you that way? Maybe. Okay. So, there's this genre of, like, late 19th slash early 20th century British horror. Some of it is built on Dracula's bones. Some of it is built on the bones of, like, Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla and some of the things that, like, predated Dracula. Um, and, you know, some of it is built on the bones of things that we barely remember because they were like very bad pulp stories at the time mm-hmm. that we like didn't really deserve to survive and also didn't survive but but we love them anyway we love them now anyway um <laughs> my when we were discussing steampunk as a genre last episode um and in this context the one author and title that springs to mind is kim newman um who wrote the anno dracula books ah yes so you know the anno dracula books i haven't read them but i know of them okay so the first one takes place roughly uh concomitant with the dracula like the novel sure um and then they sort of proceed from there like i think there's one set in like around the turn of the 20th century there's one that's like world war one there's like some ones in the 20s and 30s there's like you know some 50s ones there's maybe some world war ii ones anyway um the original novel anno dracula uh features it's basically the idea that um dracula as uh what's the word i'm trying to think of Child of the night. Um, yeah, vampire. Yep. You're right. You I did think. you did say it. Um <laughs> so he like he survives the events of the novel Dracula and he Because comes, of course he did. Right. And he comes to England and like woos Queen Victoria and because convinces of course he did. her to marry him. And then like vampires are a thing. Because of course they are. But like not only are they a thing, they're obviously, like, a fad, because, like, the royal court of England is now, right. you know, ruled if, by if vampires. If Queen Victoria does it, it must be cool. Exactly. Um, but, like, the thing about Anno Dracula is that Kim Newman, who wrote it, seems to have read every single possible, like, work of pulp fiction published in or around London... From about 1850 through, I don't know when, <laughs> at least the turn of the century, if of course. not farther. And it's built 
out of all of this Pulp Fiction. Naturally. And not only that, but he's, like, seen every Dracula movie, like, the ones that Hollywood produced in the 1950s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, towards the climax of the novel, when the heroes, like, go into Dracula's lair, um, there is specified an armadillo that's, like, wandering through the halls, right? What? So, I got the annotated version of this novel. Yep. Um, in, in the annotations about the armadillo, Kim Newman specifically says that, like, one of the B-grade Dracula movies produced in Hollywood in the, like, 50s, they just, like, took all of the, like, vermin game that they could find cheaply and just released it into the, like, scene and setting stuff of Dracula's Lair. Okay. Um, and that one of those things, because they were filming not even necessarily in California, but maybe in, like, um, New Mexico or Texas, they had some armadillos. So, like, in this Dracula movie from the 50s, he has, like, these armadillos wandering around his castle, right? Why not? And so Kim Newman, in his novel Anno Dracula, as a salute to this, like, has these armadillos incongruously wandering Dracula's palace in London in the late 19th century. Right, naturally. Okay, I, I follow. Alright, I'm glad you follow that, because I have no idea what point I was making. I don't remember what point you were making initially. I don't either. either. But just the idea of this whole tradition of this genre that I may not mention is what genre? interesting to me. The one that's interesting to me. Oh, that one. Uh, yep. Which, I, I, I mean, this this takes um, a uh, postmodernist sort of approach, this novel does, to yeah. that genre. Right. Um, turning it into a, uh, a narrative of minorities in culture, sort How of. How so? Um, that these supernatural beings are sort of looked down upon, even if they are acknowledgedly so within this novel. Very dangerous. powerful or dangerous. Sure. Um, they are still considered equal to all of the rest of the culture. Right. To an extent. I don't know where I'm going with that either. I'm just acknowledging what this book is doing. Right. <laughs> Good. Good. Um, maybe this is as good a time as any for me to uh, take this point. I wanted to do this even last episode. Sure. Um, I'm going to take the reins and turn this to Names with Michael. Names. 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 Names with Michael. We haven't had a Names with Michael for kind of a while. No, we haven't. And this one is kind of dangerous in that regard. Mm. I could go a long time. Oh, I remembered the point I was making, but I want you to do Names names with Michael first. All right, we'll do Names with Michael first, and then go on to that. Yes. Um, so the point where I actually noticed the relevance for Names with Michael was when we were in um, a Countess Nadasti's estate. Right. Uh, and introduced to several of her subordinates, especially one um, Mr. or Lord Hematol, 
which is mm. almost the worst of them. Like, and, and I say that quite graciously because yeah. the rest are really good. Hematol is the one that just tipped me off because okay. Hematol is very explicitly connected to blood. Right. Right. Yes. Hematol. Okay. Yeah. Um, in his company are others such as um, Mr. or Lord, I can't remember exactly, um, Cadis, C-A-E-D-E-S. Oh. Which is a Latin word. Do you know what it is the Latin word for, Ethan? Uh, I know what it's related to. I know it's related to, like, medicine and well, related matters. It is the Latin, well, one of the several Latin words for murder. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so that's where it really tipped me off, which caused me to then go back to the beginning of the book. This is sure. maybe a third of the way through where those names come up. Um, and so I turned back to see some other occasions. Um, looking at the very first name is the first three words of the novel, Miss Alexia Terabati. Right. Terabati, in fact, I did a search on this and some uh, a little bit of um, looking into thinking maybe it's an Italian word for something. Right. It's not an Italian word for something. It's, in fact, an Italian name for a nun. Oh, a nun named Terabati, who is considered one of the mothers of modern feminism. Oh, okay. An Italian nun who pioneered modern feminism uh, and even theorized ideas about women voting in government hmm. and things like that, which I don't think is an accident to name the main character of this novel, Terabati. Yeah. Um, but the one that's... Um, well, a, a, another one is uh, Connell Mackin. Connell Mackin. Yeah. The main werewolf character. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's very Scottish. And right. Connell Mackin is basically wolf-wolf. Um, (laughs) so not an accident there. Um, Professor Lyle, Lyle is also an Irish word for wolf. Okay. So, okay. So that right there, all of that is telling me that this author, Gail Carriger or Carriger is very conscious of the names that she gives to her characters. Yeah. And then you get to, uh, the friend of Alexia Terabati. Right. Named Lord Akeldama. Oh, do you sure. know what Akeldama means? Um, I want to say I know that it has connections to alchemy, but okay. I don't know anything other than that. I don't know about a, uh, any connections to alchemy, but it is Hebrew. Um, Hakel means field, and Dama means blood, field of blood. Oh. This is where Judas was buried. Oh. Interesting. Uh, so, honestly, when I came across this and started thinking of it in terms of a mystery novel, I really thought Lord Akeldama was the bad guy. Sure. Because of his name. Sure. Because he has the name of the betrayer. Right. But then when you start thinking of it in broader terms, in terms of this novel as you know, this mixture of all of these genres and therefore also a postmodern novel, it's going to flip that paradigm. Right. And make him the Christ figure, which it exactly does. Oh, it does, doesn't it? Right? Think of when he's tortured at the end. Right. And it's described as him having wooden stakes between his hands 
in his hands and in his feet. Yeah, right. Um, he is very much in a Christ-like state. Yeah. Even though he is, by his name, the Judas figure. Sure. Um, he's not actually the, the Judas figure. The actual villain is someone else. <laughs> right. He is crucified. Right. As sort of the Christ figure at the end. So here's an interesting thing. Yes. Because he's... He's the very flamboyant vampire, right? Correct. Um, so what his descriptors and sort of, like, set of uh, associations, I guess, what they were all making me think of throughout this novel was Oscar Wilde. Sure. Um, very much so. Yeah, and Oscar Wilde, obviously, to draw a few of the connections more explicitly, um... Was fin de siècle, uh, very much the sort of playboy slash, um, sort of a dissolute figure, I guess, in a lot of ways, um, very much this, like, dissipated, dissipated, uh, we're at the end of history, whatever, you know, we might as well sort of eat, eat drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die, kind of a figure. Mm -hmm. um, well, at the same time, and you know, Oscar Wilde was the famous sort of uh, photographic portraits of him. He's dressed in furs. Yep. Um, you know, he's very much sort of a uh, um, luxuriant, uh, I don't know, decadent, I guess, kind of figure. Mm -hmm. At the same time. Oscar Wilde was obsessed with Christ. Mm-hmm. And not in, like, a, a iconoclast way, and not even in, like, a sacrilegious or, like, disrespectful way. Um, there are genuine passages in Oscar Wilde's works where he thinks that, like, Christ is the centerpiece of literature mm. and of um, the experience of humanity. Mm -hmm. um, specifically in some of uh, uh, his... He wrote a, a book of fairy tales for children. Mm. Um, and it was called something... Like, it was almost called that. It was, it was something very on the nose. Um, but yeah, there's like... Six fairy tales in that book, and two of them are very explicitly Christ, uh, you know, images or, or uh, stories. Um, and in De Profundis, which is his letter from prison to the male lover who essentially put him in prison, mm -hmm. it, essentially by a very explicit side of personal betrayals um wild i mean for one thing it's called de profundis mm -hmm. right the the uh latin name for the psalms Psalm out of 30 yeah out of the depths i cried mm -hmm. to you um du, 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 du. thank you yep. um, i'm quoting luther with my do do do's your 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 chant quoting luther yep. Um, yeah, and 
that's explicitly referenced in the name Oscar Wilde gives to this like 150 page long letter um once again to this man that betrayed him mm-hmm. like quite explicitly put him in prison for several years um and uh within the text of De Profundis um which i personally think is the best thing Oscar Wilde wrote like it's better than Ernest it's better than um Portrait of Dorian Gray it's one of the most honest raw pieces of literature I think that has ever been produced um but Wilde like explicitly talks about how both fascinated and I guess almost revivified by the idea of Christ that he is within all of these circumstances and ultimately it's like the idea like the central christian idea that basically reading this letter basically both gives wild the like strength and gumption to survive this prison sentence Mm. and also to write this like very sort of forgiving merciful letter to the person who put him in prison in the first place. Yeah. Um, which, the end of that story, as I understand it, um, is that Wilde got out of prison, died not too long after he got out of prison, but was baptized on his deathbed. Yeah. Um, and this is not one of those, like, you know, there are stories about, like, Hitler or... Um, <laughs> Why can't I think of the evolution guy's name? Darwin. Darwin. There's stories about, like, Hitler or Darwin that, like, they converted on their deathbed, and all of these stories are, like, real questionable and, Mm -hmm. you know, not super well-attested. Like, the story about Oscar Wilde is very, very well-attested and seems, as much as we can know anything in history objectively, seems to be objectively true that Oscar Wilde was baptized by his own request on his deathbed yep um and you know that was after he wrote to a different friend on that same bed my drapes and i are in a battle to the death one of us must go um which is one of the greatest (laughs) delightful (laughs) great um but you know yeah so like that's a fascinating set of connections, and I I am sort of out of whole cloth spinning the connection between Oscar Wilde and uh, Akeldama. Akeldama. Um but it seems like if a leap is going to be made, that seems like a valid leap to no, make. No, absolutely, I think it is. Um, what what I want to say about that too, though, is you know we we classify this as having a whole bunch of genres put into it at once. And the mystery genre is one of those, like that Sherlock Holmes sort of Victorian-era mystery genre. But, like, again, it's one of those that we can't necessarily solve because we don't have a whole lot of hints beforehand. If I'm trying to figure out who it is, I'm going to assume it's a Keldama. He's maybe the clearest, which is kind of one of those, like, red herrings. 
That, yeah, like he's not the well, one especially who's if you're creating these vampires, diving to, into like, the Hebrew of his name, you right? nerd, you giant nerd, I'm a super nerd. But like the the actual villain seems more or less to come out of nowhere. Now I don't know if this whole society of the octopus worship, worshiping people is continued in future sequels. I guess I have to assume this. that it is. I, like, and I'm why kind of would you create it? Which just, like, bleeds into this whole idea of another genre added in, which is the H.P. Lovecraft horror genre. Yeah. With these octopus people being connected to the squid-like Cthulhu. Well, and H.P. Lovecraft's whole thing was to connect, like, the, like, unearthly horror with actual scientific advancements and things. Quite. Yeah, exactly. And and that's kind of what I'm hoping for the sequels here, that they get even deeper into that. Where the reader can make a little more sense gradually yeah. as we go along. Um, I do have to yeah. say that the uh, the guy that she like goes out riding with or whatever, uh, who, McDougal. Yeah, McDougal. I immediately was like, oh no, he's part of the he's part yep. of the. Thing. No, I I knew exactly that he was a, not a villain, but on the villain's end of things. Yeah. Which, I have to say, I don't know that I got that from the mystery genre part of this book. I think I got that from the romance exactly. genre part of it. That's what I was going to say. Where it was like, there's clearly someone she's supposed to end up with. And if this guy no, is, it, what A, it, not that, and B, is distracting her from that, then in the mystery slash like thriller part of it, he has to be bad. Right. Because of his function within well, the romance and part. that's... One of the marvelous things about this, McDougal, um, how we know he's a villain immediately comes out of not just the romance genre, yeah, nor the mystery genre, but also the Jane Austen genre. Because oh sure, yeah, like yeah. think of Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility. The one that you're immediately attracted to is going to be the guy with the W name, which is an M upside down. Um, a wait, white cliff. Wait, wait, or wait. Explain, explain this. Shit. Every villain in Jane Austen novels starts with a W. Whitecliff, Wickham. Because I was about to go to Wickham as yep. the guy that you're attracted to, who yep. turns out to be. And it's, a that's an M upside bag. down, which is McDougal. I don't know if that's intentional, but yeah. that's how Jane Austen. Where did works. you get the M upside down connection? Or just did you W. Just... Okay. And McDougal is amongst them. I want to say you're reaching way too hard and gonna pull something. But I don't think I am! Well, once again, like last episode, I want to say it. <laughs> yep, but you can't. But I don't think I can. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, so, no, that's... that's I, Again, this, this genre nexus that yeah. uh, is happening in this novel of... You know, Jane Austen mixed with Sherlock Holmes, mixed with H.P. Lovecraft, and right. other mystery, horror, romance stuff. All of these things mixed together. Um, we talked in our discussion of the planes about um, the autobiographical sort of nature of things. Okay, yeah. I don't want to... And I don't always think that's the most helpful thing to do, but I think some of that may fit in here as well. 
um, because Gail Carriger, um, let me read her little uh, author bio at the back of this book. Yeah. New York Times bestselling author Gail Carriger writes to cope with being raised in obscurity by an expatriate Brit and an incurable curmudgeon. She escaped small-town life and inadvertently acquired several degrees in higher learning. Ms. Carriger then traveled the historic cities of Europe, subsisting entirely on biscuits secreted in her handbag. She resides in the colonies, surrounded by fantastic shoes, where she insists on tea imported from London. So, Gail Carriger is an American, born of a Londoner, or an English-born woman yeah. type. Um, the main character of this novel is born of an English woman, but her father is Italian. Right. And the way she's described, the way she's described, Alexia Tarabati, right. the way she's just, she is described is... How's the enunciation going for you? Good. It's going great. It's fine. Um, <laughs> Alexia Tarabati, if she were described without any qualifiers, you would think she were... How would you describe her, Ethan? Hot. Hot. Thank you very Wait, much. Is that what you wanted? That is exactly what I was looking oh. for. Yes. No. Alexia Tarabati is extremely hot, right? But in this Victorian setting, she is described as ex explicitly not hot. She is I, described I as do ugly with her big, ugly Roman nose and with ugly tan skin yeah. and being too ugly thin. Okay. A. I want to say I described her as hot just because I was attracted to her descriptively. B, I also want to say, Gail Carriger, if you're still listening, I am so sorry for about for the comparison <laughs> I'm about to make because you don't deserve it and you are much better than this comparison. Do you know what, from your cackling, do you know what I'm about to say? Um... It's a similar technique to the one used for Bella in Twilight. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I almost made oh. myself stop and made yes. you say it, but I didn't. Oh, no. Because, like, the whole intention in Twilight, and I don't think it's original yep. to Twilight, I think it's probably a romance genre. Trope, yes! That's what I was going to say. Is that the, the narrator, the first person narrator, is like, I'm so ugly, I only have like, a 36, 23, 36 kind of figure, <laughs> and, like, I'm obviously ugly because oh it's gosh. not 24. Um, oh, my god! And it's it's just, you know, it's, it's... It is actually originally, and, like, if you were doing it in a vacuum, a somewhat advanced narrative technique and where you're forcing the reader to put together the information that you are a different person than you describe yourself to the reader. But it's, sure. like, been done so many times that by the time I encountered this in Solus, and I want to mention that I only read all of Twilight because there was a young woman who also read it who I was trying to score points with, and she is not my wife now, so it was pointless. Way to go. But... That's why. But anyway, it's been done so many times that by the time I encountered it in Solace, I was like, oh, yes, she's super hot. Yep. Uh, I read the first book in that series um, for my undergrad thesis, and oh, right. I referenced it only in the first sentence of my undergrad thesis. 
Your uh, what thesis? My undergrad thesis. Okay. Yep. Very uh, and anyway, what I wanted to say about this is that, yes, I think it is a romance trope. And I only say that by assumption because I haven't read that terribly many romance novels. Yeah, I haven't read that many, but I still think it But is. here's what I want to say. I think Gail Carriger cares a lot more about Alexia Terabody than a lot of romance novelists care about their heroine. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And I think that comes through because I think Alexia Terabody, following that trope, actually evolves over it. Yeah. I, I think she, she reveals comes that into... trope, but then like comes into it and like I think it's deliberately presented in a sort of not necessarily satirical, but almost satirical way, yeah. which comes into exactly what we've been talking about since last episode, this nexus of all of these genres here. When you have such a nexus, if you're going to succeed, you have to be satirical to all of them in some degree or another. And yeah, yeah. I think she is satirical to that romance genre in how Alexia is described. Because sure. it's described so many times, and I'm not going to bother trying to page through and find all of the instances where she's described as ugly, and then immediately the explicit ex uh, description of her physique is yeah. given, and to a 21st century reader, it's like, no, that's hot. Yeah. But she's or described as ugly. could be. Right. Like, you could, you just as easily could be hot as not. Um mm -hmm. Which might speak to, like, Gail Carrier is setting her heroine in a much more restrictive sort of milieu sure. where what is attractive is much more um, circumscribed versus she knows she's playing that off against sure. a milieu in the 21st century where what is attractive is... Much, a little looser. Yeah, looser or much more sort broad. of... Broad. Broad, um, personally defined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, like, it could be that it's that tension. Sure. I feel like I had somewhere else I was going with that, but I can't remember what it was. That's yeah, okay. Um, so the other thing that I've been thinking about and potentially pointing us towards, though not necessarily in, like, a real uh, urgent way, is what we've touched on a few times, um, the main character's parent. Yes. Parentage. Specifically her father, who is Italian. Yes. And I... And Solas. And Solas. I want to say that the Italian parentage is... Another, like, almost hidden or veiled deep cut reference to the 19th century horror um, genre that this book ultimately comes out of. Okay. Obviously, with a lot of gradations and other stuff in between. Um, but reaching back to that, like, Sheridan Lefanu, Bram Stoker, even, like, Mary Shelley. Uh -huh. um, uh, what's the name of my favorite gothic novelist? Can't remember his name, but also, like... Henry? 
something? Are you just saying Englishy names? No, I, I I think I know what author you're talking about, and I can't remember his full name, but I think it's Henry something. Oh, he's over here. Oh, grab him. Is I see it, him. Is it Henry something? Oh, he's gonna get away. No, I got him. Charles. Oh. Maybe Henry was his younger brother. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Charles Robert Maturin. Melmoth the Wanderer. Got it. Who we may do one day on one of our... Um, Mongo books? Mongo book reads. Uh, anyway. So, yeah. Uh, part of part of Gale Carrier's um, characterization reaches back to the point, and, like, it even goes past these, like, original, real gothic novelists back into Shakespeare's day, where Italian equals mysterious, yep. um, foreign, mystical, or, like, generally speaking, other. Right. Um, and I think that's where uh, all of the things that this character gets that don't make her fit into English society. She gets them from this Italian father mm-hmm. who comes from the place where the monk by uh, um, Matthew Lewis that is literally straight across from me <laughs> that, you know, Charles Robert Maturin, um, let alone like Shakespeare in his Italian plays, you know, it's this place of like, wonder and and mystery it's close to like it's on the mediterranean italy is so like it's close to this middle eastern thing and you know egypt and even Mm -hmm. stretching down into like sub-saharan africa um you have all of these associations with someone who's italian and i want to say that um our main character's father's heritage is, if not, like, from that is at least, like, a reference to that. That, sure. like, this this character, even though she's dwelling within this nexus of very English genres, mm-hmm. that she gets her mysterious and her other otherness from a set of... Um, references that are very outside the world well and you can Um, even and even lord mcconnell or sure what is it yeah i get it right connell yeah uh connell mccon connell mccon like similarly uh, being up in scotland he's maybe outside of the like anglo-saxon slash norman heritage he goes back to like maybe a druidic heritage that is much more in keeping with this like mystical italian heritage sure so it's almost like from two different directions they're surrounding this like um yeah thing that they're they're surrounding this thing that in its turn hems them in right let i mean think of shakespeare here with right macbeth on the scottish side and romeo and juliet, romeo and juliet. on the italian side Slash. amongst others yeah, I was going to say even, like, some of the comedies, like Twelfth Night, Comedy yep. of Errors. Mm-hmm. Um, King Lear reaches back into that... Taming of the Shrew Anglo-Saxon is past. Italian, right? Taming of the Shrew, um, yeah. Uh, even, like, uh, A Winter's Tale. Yeah. Um, 
you know, some of it is very English. Yeah, literally from Verona. Yep. Um, Even As You Like It, which takes place either in the Forest of Arden, as in Shakespeare's backyard when he grew up in small-town England, or takes place in the Forest of Arden in France that is practically Italy. Interesting. Yeah. Um, All of this is connecting to a question I kind of had here. Um, uh, Maybe a question. I don't know. We'll see how it comes out of my mouth. Good. Um, The idea of the title, Soulless. Yeah. Obviously applying to the main character. I actually wanted to ask you this question, so go on. Okay. She is soulless. Literally, she has no soul, right? The question I wanted to ask you... Okay. And... You can keep going and ignore this if it's not All right. dovetailing the way I think it is. The question I wanted to ask you was, is she? Okay, that's what I wanted to ask. Like, what... The, the question, ultimately, that I had about this is, what is the soul? Because and she I is described that... with so many emotional connections and sympathies and things she cares about other characters yeah which would imply a soul uh especially even in the terms of the novel itself right that's the thing that i wanted i wanted to see what you thought about sure is the fact that like is she so they have this very scientific definition of the soul yes which is obviously where like some of the most non-realistic parts of the novel are, like, based on. Which is fine. But, like, it questions itself. Yes. Um, Specifically, it, like... It... I don't know how to say it, even. Um, Yeah, you're... I mean, it's basically what you just said. Some of the things that it sets up as, like definitions of someone who has a soul yep it has her fulfill them yep it just doesn't have her fulfill the scientific quote-unquote definitions of a soul right she almost has a soul according to all of the definitions except having a soul yeah and having a soul is disproven in her by the fact that she removes the supernatural element from werewolves and others Right, and that's, like, in this world and milieu is the classical definition of what a soul is. But it's, like, a self, it's almost a uh, self-referential definition. Yes, absolutely. And it's almost like an inversion of the classical stories of these horror things, that someone who has too much soul is the one who is converted into a werewolf or other supernatural being undead sort um as opposed to someone who has no soul being converted into those things because of the not exactly yeah yep i guess i personally don't know how to answer the question nor do i other than asking it as a question and saying that it it's interesting i it's interesting for sure and i think it's a question that the text itself begs yes i don't think it's 
and us reading anything into it. I think it's there right yes. in this book. and that's where I ultimately fall on this entire book. We've talked about it being a nexus of several genres. We've talked about it um, uh, presenting things and undermining them. I think it is purely a postmodern novel. That is Purely. That is purely postmodern. Because it establishes this rule of soullessness, and by its very word soullessness, right. it is defined as something lacking something. Something essential to what we as society have defined it as needing. Sure. And when we connect that with this woman who is the main character, by her gender being a minority and being part immigrant as sure. uh, an Italian, also therefore being an, a minority, being depicted in physical terms as a minority. Right. Um, this idea of what is defined upon this person is not what actually defines this person. Yeah. And, and I mean... that being broader and in, in being... I, I don't want to say moral, but the moral or the overall aim of this novel is to broaden that and yeah. say what our expectations or beliefs are should be questioned. Yeah, it certainly is. Or examined. Yeah, no, that's certainly one of the themes of the book is the idea that you have the certain edifice of beliefs and assumptions. Yes. Um, I think assumptions is probably uh, yeah. a, the biggest, perhaps, uh, a uh, word choice for this sp specific one, um, in that that edifice of assumptions is probably wrong, and you definitely mm -hmm. should question it. And which I think comes out, you know, even in like the climactic uh, fifty pages or so of the book. Sure. Um, the main character learns to question her assumptions, both about who is on her side and who isn't, who's good and who's bad, but also even the people who stay, like Lord Akeldama, mm -hmm. who stay um, on the same like moral plane that she thought they were. Yep. She's wrong about them in some way. Sure. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, that even this one that we as the reader are to be wrong about yeah. is wrong about others. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone is wrong. Yeah. Everyone needs to re-examine themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, that that's, that's maybe the most interesting facet of all of this. Yeah, I would tend to agree. Um, uh, with, in that regard, too, we see, um, Alexia, the main character, um, being proposed to marriage by Connell McMacon. Um. After she's proposed by uh, Mr. Collins. Mr. Thank you. Yep. You're welcome. Um, no, and, like, it, it, it happens several times, and her response is always, no, I'm not going to force him into marriage. Yeah. Even though it's explicitly, very clear, repeatedly, from the from the word go, he wants this. Like even and before she, she objects, this. even before she objects, he wants to marry her. Yeah. She is saying, I'm not gonna force him into marrying me. Right. 
even though he definitely wants to. Right. That proves her wrongness. Right. That she is assuming something about him when he genuinely wants this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's So just that sort of inversion of paradigms is kind of the theme of this whole thing. Yeah. All connected in this nexus of genres. Yeah. Um, so. And I think, as far as things we're going to uh, lead to summarizing, I think that's as good a summary as we're going to get. Yeah. Unless, is there anything else you wanted to bring up specifically that you haven't gotten to yet? No, that kind of summarizes everything here. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, I I certainly have nothing that can top it, so. Cool. Uh, so, we are here at the end of a set of four episodes. Yep. Which, of course, means that first, we have to rate the scotch. Yes. Ratings. So, we have Glenn Fodry, Achelanor, my Scotch Gaelic is probably very bad, Speyside, Single Malt, Scotch Whiskey, a Oak, and I'm reading off the label now, Oak aged 12, 12 years. There's a big 12 in the middle, mm -hmm. and then it also says 12 years. Non-chill filtered, uh, limited release, um... Michael, I'm going to just throw the floor open to you. What do you think of the scotch? And ultimately, you need to rate it out of five stars. Out of five stars. Um, at least four is what I'm going to rate it. Okay. Um, I'm really leaning towards 4.5 on this. Um, it's a really good scotch. Um, yeah. It's interesting. And the more I drink it, the more interesting it is. Uh, the first thing that hits me is spices. Mm -hmm. Lots of spices going on, and then after that, a lot of fruits going on. I almost, we're we're in March now. I almost wish I had drunk this in October. Okay. It strikes me as a very autumnal scotch. Okay. Sure. Um, like that that leafiness. I don't know that like leaves and oakness. Well, I mean, it it explicitly says it's oak aged, but like. That sort of fallness is yeah. in there for me, and so I want to give it a four. I'm I'm just gonna settle on a four point five. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna give it a four point five because that spice and fruit is really interesting to me. Okay, um, I actually, and even before you said any of the things you just said, I had settled on this. I'm gonna give it a four point five. Woo! So. It's so sucking, weird. Nat. We agree too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Nat. Uh, both 4.5. So, um, go eat me. Um, I know how to cuss. Anyway. <laughs> yep. Um, just because... So, like, and it was weird. It was a weird experience, the specific scotch. Mm-hmm. Because it's not the type of scotch I would ever usually even get up to four stars on let alone a 4.5 mm -hmm. um and you know as as a uh, 
previous episodes of this podcast will sort of testify, it's because I usually like that smoky thing. Mm-hmm. And I usually, what I want is smoke and, like, maybe some other, like, constellation of flavors around the smoke, but I want the smoke. But... And it didn't, like, in the way that, like, a... Um, an Islay? An Islay would do, it didn't provide, like, the smoke. It is not smoky. Like, barely, maybe, but... There's, like, there is a touch of smoke in it. Yeah. Um, there, like, I Like, could... only insofar as there was fire involved in this process of creating this scotch somewhere. Yeah, and I could, personally, I could taste... That there was more smoke in it than, like, a rye or a bourbon would have. Sure. Um, or even an Irish whiskey, for the most part. Sure. Um, and I could taste that there was more of it than that, but just barely. Um, like, what I was getting, I didn't get... It's interesting, because the second thing I like in whiskey is spice. Mm-hmm. And I didn't necessarily get the spice immediately, mm. so much as, like, stone fruits and then mm. also citrus fruits. But, like, anchored by a certain smokiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I guess I got, like, I guess I got the spices on, like, the back end. Sure. More so. But, like, it just, you know, there is, like, some vanilla in it. It's a very rich scotch. Yes. Like, it's very, even just, I don't know, I don't like talking about mouthfeel because I think... A lot of it is bullshit. Um, but there was just a very rich, like, silky mouthfeel to it um, that came through in, like, some of the vanilla and, like, definitely the oak. Mm. I did choose the scotch specifically because it wasn't some of this, like, oh, it's a sherry cask or, like, oh, it's new oak cask. It was, like, this is just a classic oak cask mm. that... I think a lot of traditional, like, classical scotches are sure um, aged in. So, and I did get a lot of that coming through. I didn't get a lot of, like, oh, this is a new, you know, hip thing. It was like, oh, this is just a real good scotch that also has rested in some good oak barrels. Sure. Would you like the tasting notes in the last paragraph of the, I back would. Of the box this, here? This is the point of the, the show where I would like those. Sure. It says, um, the aroma is bright and vibrant with zesty green apple notes and rich in characteristic space-eyed fruitiness. The flavor is satisfyingly sweet with deep vanilla oak notes balanced perfectly with fresh <laughs> fruits. The finish is a long lasting is long lasting with a fruity sweetness. So fruit everywhere. Yeah. And that vanilla oak being there in the main taste of it. Right in the middle. Yep. I guess I would agree with a lot of it. Sure. Um I honestly think there's more spice than the tasting notes give it. Mm-hmm. I the spice was the first thing I noticed to yeah. it. Yeah. Um, some cinnamon and nutmeg, perhaps, but I know you didn't notice it until the end, but... No, like, like, some of those... It's in there. It's definitely in there. Like, I would have expected it to say more spicy things somewhere in the description. Mm. I agree with that. 
Um, and like, I think some of the things I was picking up as vanilla may have been more spicy things. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. Like, uh, I was going to say something else about it, but I forgot. Yeah. Um, oh, it's a sweep. Yep. Like a couple times. Yep. And like, it's definitely for scotch. It's on the sweeter end. Sure. But I didn't pick up like a sweet vibe to it the way that I pick up sweet in like a lot of bourbon. Sure. Bourbons or like bourbon barrel age things. Cause like I usually don't like sweet. Mm. Um, but whatever sweet was there, I think was balanced enough with like citrus and spice that I, I liked it anyway. Mm hmm. So yeah, real good. Yeah. Um, and when I, when I, uh, put water in it, I don't know. What did you think of the water? Um, I, I saw you put water in it. Yeah, I did. After I saw you do it. Um, <laughs> I realized that that was a thing I could do. Um, I, I think it opened up the fruit, honestly. Yeah, the, yeah. the, like, it, it said apple, and only after I read it saying apple did I realize, yeah, that's apple. Yeah. Um, that came through. Yeah. And I, I think that's what the water did. I think a, a similar thing. I think I tasted more apple. I think I tasted more spicy notes when I put just a touch of water in. Okay. Um, I think that was when I tasted more of, like, the cinnamon, vanilla, um... Sure. Nutmeggy, spicy mm -hmm. ones. Sure. So, yeah. But real good. Very, very good. Like, even if someone was looking for a beginner scotch or, like... Honestly, that's one of the reasons I'm leaning towards the 4.5 instead of a 4. Yeah. Is because it does have a bit of a universal appeal, I think. Yeah. Not only, like, it, it's like, if you bought this one and drank this one and you tried it with, like, ice and you tried it with... Mm -hmm. um, touch of water mm -hmm. and you didn't like anything about it you probably don't like scotch yeah and if you did like anything about it it could be a very good and easy entry into like all other... the rest of scotch yeah. that exists yeah which at the same time if you're like have if you if you like scotch if you've had a lot of scotch it's still a real good one yeah it's like very complex and just a lot of stuff going on with it. Yep. Very so good. yeah, mm -hmm. um, that's our scotch rating. What yep. do you think of the scotch book pairing? So starting with um, this scotch and the planes, um, I think it's a very good match. I think there's a lot underneath it, and I want to keep searching for something underneath it. Yeah. Um. So, therefore, very good connection with that. Also, I think it's a pretty good match with Soulless as well. Uh, because I think it's the sort of scotch that you might find on English scotch table. Well, and not only that, it has a lot of different sets of things going on. Sure. That it unites. Yeah. Just like sort of the steampunk genre Yep. As well expressed in Solus. Yep. So yeah, um, I tend to agree with mm -hmm. everything you just said. 
What do you think of Solus on a scale from buy, borrow, or forget about it? I'm going to say borrow to this, and I'm going to say that primarily because it is part one in a series. Yeah. And I would say borrow it, see what you think of it to see whether you want to read it and or the rest of its series. I think this book honestly stands really well on its own. Mm -hmm. You could read this book, you could probably leave it, not read the rest of the series, even the next book in the series, and be perfectly content with this right. book. Which, and if that's what you an... read when you borrow it and you want to buy it after reading that, awesome. Yeah, from an author's perspective, I feel like that's probably sort of like a blessing slash curse. Sure. Because it's like, yeah, more people will read this one, but did I make them read all the other ones? Exactly. Like, and, and, and I don't know, with that mad jumble of genres in yeah. here, which is part of, as you say, the steampunk sort of idea, but it goes beyond even steampunk and jumbles even more genres in there. That's not for everybody. Yeah. But for those for whom it is. For whom it is for. For whom it is for. Yeah. It's it's great. Yeah. No, my personal working record recommendation. Yep. That's um, a word. I did that word. Good job. Uh similar. It's uh my my one is borrow. Again I'm not the target audience for this one. Yeah. So, you know, maybe others would have contrary opinions and I'm perfectly happy for that to be a thing. My recommendation again is borrow Solus, you know, maybe check it out from your li your local library, read it. If if it's like you need immediately to go to the next book, maybe buy Solus to support the author. Yes. If not, like I don't know, you probably had a pretty good experience with the one and that's good. Yeah. Just borrow it, see what you think, and then decide whether to buy the book, support the author, right. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I I uh have no further Questions, recommendations on that one, Your Honor, yes. The defense rests. Good. Or the prosecution, whichever one I am. I reserve judgment. Should we talk about what we're going to read next? Yes, we should. Do you have one? I do. Good. Do you I'm want gonna, it? I'm going to go first. You go first. Okay. I'll um, sit back down. I didn't... I'm sorry to make you stand up and then sit back down. No, you're not. I didn't buy you this month's one because okay. I'm 94% certain that you have it. Okay. It is, and I'm bringing out as an object lesson my copy of it. Yep. Jacques the Fatalist. I do have that. And His Master by Denis Diderot. I almost started reading that just on my own recently. So. Wow. So there we go. Yep. I read it last summer, so it's March. I read it like in last June or July. Very good. And it's very good. And I, I just, I tried, I tried to convince myself to read a bunch of other ones for this show for the next one. 
And it was like, no, you want to read Jacques the Fatalist. My brain said that. Mm-hmm. And so I gave in. Good job, it. Ethan's brain. Thank you. It, my brain says thank you. Yep. All right. What so else are we reading next? What else we are reading? I did buy you a copy. I so, appreciate you. Um, You're a wonderful and beautiful person. The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. I have never, ever seen or heard of this book. It is very new. What's the publication um, date on that, Ethan? I'm looking it up as I try to... Uh, also read everything it's about by it. stuart turton by the way seven and a half half deaths of evelyn hardcastle by stuart turton so the publication like library of congress nonsense yep. says copyright 2018 yep it is very very new um okay. this is recommended to me by my brother and uh he may be a guest on our episode when we discuss this book okay cool so uh, Your brother Nick. Nick. Yep. Cool. Yep. He recommended this. He said this was a lot of fun to read. It is a mystery with a supernatural, almost Lovecraftian element to it. Okay. Uh, but also mystery that you can figure out, like an Agatha Christie, um, if you examine it closely enough. So, uh, yeah, that's that. Interesting. It's got maps and things involved. Oh man! So that you can. So I'm definitely not gonna figure any of it out, but <laughs> I'm sure it will be fun in the meantime. Very good. All right. Don't read the end. It's reading the end. Stop it. Oh, I'm. There's a reading group guide. Of course there is. So we're gonna make fun of that shit. Naturally. Sorry, I'm uh, trying to get us the explicit tag. Just you are up. trying so hard. You forget that I'm the editor on this. <laughs> <laughs> do I forget? Or do you? Or do I? Wow. I'm glad we did this very original uh, Broadway shtick. Yep. Alright. I can't read it. <laughs> I feel like we should punish you for this book being a vampire book. Except I was very good and I didn't say You were that. very good and you didn't say any of it, so I'm mad at you. See, I challenged myself with this book because I brought this book, but right. I did not say the V word the entire time. I'm so proud of you and also I hate you. I know. Okay, so next time, would it be Jack the Fatalist? Yep. Okay. So, gentle listener... Please read Jacques the Fatalist by Denise Diderot. There are several different English translations of this book. Uh, you can read any of them. I'm pretty certain Michael and I have two different translations, so that should be interesting. So, read along. Give us your feedback. We appreciate all of your feedback of any kind, even if it's bad and yep. even if it's not making a mean meme about me <laughs> but talk to us in the uh at tapestryradio.org um in our contact section put scotch talk in the subject line talk to us on twitter at room with scotch talk to us in the tapestry radio tap house on facebook we will 
confirm your membership if you're anything that is not a Nazi, um, a robot who is not a person, or I was gonna say if or if you're soulless, but even if you're soulless, you're probably not. So you can join us, please, right. Daryl. Because yeah. that definition is a little. Little little wobbly woodly timey wimey. We will do your homework if you go to tapsterradio.org/slash scotch talk. We you can find a form where you can submit your homework from your college or high school or whatever class. Um, we'll do it. We We'll do it badly so that if you turn it in, we will find it hilarious because your plagiarism landed you in F territory and also jail. <laughs> um, but if you do it, we will be amused and stuff. Um, we'll love it. We'll love it. You won't. Nope. Anyway... If you like this podcast, you can check out our other Tapster Radio Network podcasts, Intermission, our audio drama podcast, the Pokemon one. Um, <laughs> Good job. Thank you. Do you want to say it? Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United RPG podcast. Thank you. We're at the end of a series of recordings, and this is all I'm good for. <laughs> um. Also, here's Johnny, the uh, horror movie criticism review podcast, horror movies, and also video games. Yep. Um, it's very good. It's very interesting. The men on this podcast are smarter than anyone in this, all of the other podcasts on our show, on our network. I know how words are. Also, they is smart. They S M R T. They can do good smart ones. S M R T. Um, also, check out my webcomic, Pin Porter Girl Detective, the film noir fairy tale, very good pod, not podcast, podcast. webcomic one, um, pinporterdetective.com. Yep. Rate and review us. We don't pay to advertise in any way. We love your reviews, unless they're anything less than five stars. But every review is five stars. Thank yep. you. We love you. It's our party. And we'll cry if we want to.
obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects. Of oblivion. Of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our to yours.